Hi, I'm Simone Kolnick. And I am Addison Landers. And we would like to welcome you to Hijinks, a podcast brought to you by the Howard County Library System. In this episode, we speak with debut New York Times bestselling author, Roseanne A. Brown. Her gripping duologies, A Song of Rapes and Ruin, and second book, A Psalm of Storms and Silence, are based on fantasy with a mix of West African folklore. Listen in to hear all about Rosie's roots in Ghana, growing up in Howard County, her writing process, and a look into her daily life. And don't miss our biggest party of the year. Our Evening in the Stacks Gala is coming soon on Saturday, May 14th, and we're having a flash sale on tickets. Get you or your group's tickets today at hclibrary.org and see you on the dance floor. And joining us now is Roseanne A. Brown, author of A Song of Rates and Ruin and A Psalm of Storms and Silence. Hi, Rosie. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. So I'll jump right in. Please just tell us about your background in Ghana and then Maryland. Sure. Okay. So I was born in Kumasi, Ghana in West Africa. And my family, we immigrated to the United States when I was around three or four years old. So I was very young. And we moved first to DC. And then we lived in Silver Spring for a little while. And then we moved to Columbia. And then from Columbia, we ended up in Laurel. So it was a lot of places in a short span of years. But um, from the age of like, maybe I was six, from six until adulthood I lived in the um, Laurel area I went to school in Howard County I've just been here the majority of my life what do you what do you appreciate or miss most about Ghana mm-hmm. I think what I miss most about Ghana is the two answers the first one is the food because I love me some Ghanaian food like jollof rice is a very popular one but I love um we have this kind of powdered donut called bufrut I love bufrut I love kinke, which is like pounded cornmeal. I love like um, kebabs and fish and like just, I'll oh, just think about it. It's making me kind of hungry. Like the food is just so readily available. And there's a couple places here where you can get um, Ghanaian style food, lots of restaurants, but it's just not quite the same. And I also just sort of miss the sense of community and the sense of like having been born in a country where the majority of the people look like me, know my language, know my culture. Like there's just this feeling of homecoming. And even though like, America feels like my home too. It's just in, in a very different sort of way. Um, have you gone back to visit Ghana, Rosie? Yeah, I've been back a couple of times. I've never fully like lived there since we moved out. Okay. But um, I've definitely been there for like a month or so at a time here and there throughout my life. And I usually hang out with my cousins and they'll like to joke because like they'll call me and my sisters like, oh, they're the American cousins. Uh-huh. Um, because we'll be, there, like, we'll be like, can we turn on the AC? And they're like, it's not that hot. <laughs> for those of you don't know, Ghana's like right above the equator. It is that hot. They are right. used to it. Right. But, um, so but it's always good to go back. It's good to be with the family because like no matter how much they tease, it's just it's always good to go back home. Okay. And so do you cook any of the food or you just usually find your go-to spots to get your, your fix on Ghanaian food? I can cook it, but not that well. Like not I'm like my mom, see my mom, she used to run a, um, sorry, let me start over. So my mother used to run a Ghanaian restaurant. So like oh. she knows her stuff really well. Yeah. And so I just like, I definitely will admit that sometimes I'll be like, mm, I could cook jollof rice or I could hop back home and go get some from mom's fridge like because yeah. hers is just always so good and I'm like it's the same quality for less work for me 
That is funny. Now, the, this next question is very, very, very important. Okay. Um, the argument for the best jollof rice, especially in West Africa, is a contentious one. There are festivals, there are competitions, there are contests. <laughs> Rosie, which country has the best jollof rice? You know, this is not a fair question because you know I can't not say Ghana. Like, you know, that's not allowed. Like, I have to say Ghana. Um, yeah. And because, like, can you imagine if I don't say Ghana and then, like, the messages I'm going to get from the Ghanaians, like, no, I can't do that. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, it's, it's just like, I feel like... <sighs> The thing Ghanaian jollof rice just has going for it, number one, like we love to add different kinds of meats and things like shrimp, chicken, beef, basil is not a meat, but like just the uh, bay leaves and things add just such a fragrance to it. And some other cultures who will not be named, but they know who they are. The water (laughs) to the water to um, rice ratio is off and it gets kind of soggy and a little bit soupy. Ghanaian rice, never soupy, never soggy. That's not an issue. It's just every time. Perfect. That is so funny. And for listeners who are not familiar with this argument, just Google it. There is so much content out there about this ongoing competition. And then shout out. I'll give a positive shout out to some of the contenders um, in West Africa. So shout out to Liberia, to Nigeria, to Senegal, to Sierra Leone. Am I missing anyone? To Ghana. And I think I think I covered it for that for that group. Um, of the jell rice arguments, the jell rice wars. Rosie, is there a place here in Maryland that you, you uh, like the jell rice? I mean, because because my mother used to run around, she doesn't run anymore because she used to. I am so biased because I'm always like, I go to restaurants, I'm like, mm, this isn't as good as my mom's. So like, <laughs> I actually, hmm, there are some places in College Park that have some pretty good, I can't remember the name because I went to University of Maryland. Yes. Um, and so as a student there, I had a couple of good places. So if you search College Park African restaurants, they'll probably come up. I cannot remember the name for the life of me at the moment, but I feel like PG County, um, there's a very strong African immigrant population there. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the restaurants are very good quality, but like, I'm just so biased because my mom is like, I know everyone's like, their mom's their best. But like, exactly. no, my mom is that, like my mom, again, she's like a trained chef. Like she's that good. She does catering for people in their weddings and things like she is good. Nice. So jumping back, how did you become an author? Mm. Okay. So for me, like I, so when I first came to America, I actually could not speak English and it was a whole thing because my teachers were very concerned. They were calling my parents like, Rosie doesn't know what's going on. She can't keep up. Like we might have to hold her back. Like it was a whole big issue. And I was just sort of struggling and struggling because I don't fully remember the move, but I, remember kind of like the sensation that you've been taken from one place and everything's different you don't get why even though I was really little and so I just was very sort of checked out and it took me until I was like in second grade or so I distinctly remember that like I was at BJ's with my mom and there was this stuffed dog I like really really wanted and I kept bothering her she our native language I was like mom I want the dog I want the dog I want the dog and she's like if you go to the book table and you pick up all the books and you tell me like read it from start to finish and tell me what's about in English. I will, next time we come, I will buy you the dog. So I'm going to be like, okay, mom. And I stomp over to the table and the book I ended up picking up was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I do want to add, like, I don't agree with the author, a lot of her current day views on many subjects, but just the book itself opened up all these doors. I'm like, wow, you can like 
put words on a page and people will see things with their, it just blew open my mind. I was like, what? And from then on, I just kept reading and reading everything and get my hands on. Like I moved from like the bottom of the grade, like towards the top and like reading. And I honestly never got that dog. So like my mom, she really ran a good con on that one because I never got that. Back to that. <laughs> but it's just from then on, it just kept on growing and growing and growing. And then it just became a thing. Like I want to do things like what books gave me. I want to do that for future readers. That is a super inspirational story. It's a wonderful way to find your way to becoming an author. Um, now, you grew up in Howard County. Did you ever visit like the library branches from that point on? Oh, I like lived at the Sav- like shout out to Savage Library in particular, because like nice. I, I was on Laurel, that was our close one. I lived like before the renovation, like some of y'all might not remember, you had like the green everywhere and like the kids section was like over towards like the, when you rock in like right towards the back end, little nook. like I lived over there. I remember at one point the librarian at the time, like I was one summer, I was coming in like every day, like she'd recommend me like Animal Arc, that was a series, the Animal Arc book. She'd recommend me and like, I'd come back the next day and I'd finish them all. And she's like, how are you reading them this fast? I'm like, I have nothing else to do, it's summer. <laughs> but I was in Savage, like the whole, the teen section up through, I graduated 2013. So like up through 2013, I basically read, no exaggeration, I'd say at least 75% of everything on the teen shelves there. Like I was in there. Wow. Can you tell us about your New York Time and indie best-selling book? So A Song of Race and Ruin is set in a world inspired by West African folklore, and it follows two protagonists, a princess named Karina and a refugee named Malik. And so when Malik's younger sister is kidnapped by vengeful spirits, he strikes a deal that in order to win her freedom, he must kill the crown princess of the nation, Karina. So he enters a competition for her hand in marriage in order to get close to her and kill her and save his sister. However, he is not aware that the queen, Karina's mother, has just been assassinated. And Karina has discovered a forbidden spell that will bring her mother back to life. However, to do so, she needs the heart of a king. And there's no king because her father died a long time ago. So she set up this whole competition to find some guy, marry him and make him king, and then kill him so she can bring her mother back to life. So yeah, he's trying to kill her. She's trying to kill him. Neither of them are aware of this. And the book is about what happens. It's dual POV. So we see both of their like plotting and scheming as they maneuver around each other. And what happens when they actually meet and they realize they have a lot more in common than they'd like. So that's book one. I can't talk much about book two without spoiling it, but let's, I like to describe it as everything gets worse for everyone in every way possible. And I've had lots of angry and like the happy, angry reader messages, like, how could you do that to them? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. That, that is so cool. And so you really stick to your story and what you want these characters to do. And you don't necessarily cater to as much as we, we want. You don't necessarily cater to the reader's expectations. You kind of create a little challenge there. I feel because like you're always definitely aware that like what readers like will want to see and like honestly sometimes like what I would want to see but it's not necessarily what the story needs like especially with the second one I ended up writing rewriting that second book four times over the course of like I started in 2019 and then it went into print like my public my publisher started uh, accepted for printing in 2021 spring 2021 so close to a little under two years of work so in those two years, I rewrote it four times, like top to bottom, starting over. Um, 
simply because like there were things I thought like, oh, the story, like I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to explore that. And even though I wanted to do it, the story didn't need that. And that's a lesson I've definitely learned as an author. Like what is the story demanding? What are the characters demanding? And sometimes that is what the audience wants. And sometimes it's not. And so I found that the best place for me to be in as an author is like always listen to what the story needs, even when sometimes it's against what I myself might want. And with so many avenues and, and directions and things happening in the story, how do you keep that straight as you're writing and putting down your ideas? Ooh, a lot of late night crying slash brainstorming sessions with my friends. Like, <laughs> like I, I always try to be real with people. Like it's, it's, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for me. Like with the first book, um, the version like in reader's hands that went to print was draft 10. And of those drafts, I rewrote that one six times. Um, so like, it was a lot, a lot of revision, a lot of redoing. Um, I, I like to use Scrivener. It's my favorite word processor because you have so many functions to like sort of organize things and move them around and like just get my thoughts on in a visual sort of way. I tried whiteboards. Whiteboards were not for me. I tried like basically any writing tip you've seen online to like organize your stuff. I have tried it. Um, and I have nothing against any of them. It's just about like what works for you. And I found like what works best is sort of like a mix of like Scrivener with talking with friends. And I've also found sometimes if I come up with a plot point and I forget it, it probably was not that good. Like I know that sounds like trite, but it's just like I found like the things that tend to be the meatiest and that help the story the most, like they'll take hold and they won't let go. Like I will not forget it. So sometimes I just I'll think about something. I'm like, if in a couple of days I'm still thinking about this, I'll actually consider putting it in the book. Wow. So in the book jacket of A Song of Wraiths and Ruin, um, there's a description that says the first in a gripping fantasy duology inspired by West African folklore. How how do you get there? Um, What is your inspiration for even heading down the path of writing a story like that based on that? And are the characters based on certain people? How did you develop that? Um, As well as just the cover art, the powerful imagery that's on both books. Sure, definitely. So let me... Uh, let me answer that question chronologically, kind of yes. like the, time, the timeline of the book. I think that's the easiest way to do it. So I first got the idea for the book. It was spring 2016. Um, I was a junior in college at the time. And as um, some readers know, mental health, mental illness is one of the big themes of the story. And at the time, I was going to therapy for the first time and sort of like really learning about my own mental health and like understanding how my own brain worked. And I distinctly remember I was walking back from a therapist session and I was sort of reviewing everything me and my therapist were talking about. I remember thinking to myself, wow, if a ghost tried to possess me right now, they'd be like, Ooh, you have a lot going on in there. Like, I don't like that. You can, you can have this back. This is like a mess. <laughs> it sounds funny now, but it really got me thinking like, hang on, like how would a care, like what kind of character would actually be a situation they're being possessed by ghosts and their brain is such a mess that the ghosts don't want to be in there. <laughs> and like, how would they deal with that? And it really started to get me thinking about sort of how mental illness, mental health is portrayed in fiction, particularly in fantasy. And I started to realize like every time we see it in fantasy, it's always like a metaphor, like it's kind of like Elsa in Frozen where her powers are kind of a metaphor, can be read as a metaphor for like depression, anxiety, or it's kind of demonized. Like they're seen as very villainous. They're seen as like they're crazy. So they're evil. I realized I had never really read a book where it was like 
it was a very literal, tangible thing. Like this character has magical powers and he has anxiety and he has depression. Like it's written on the page. Like one does not substitute the other. And that became the inspiration for Malik, the male protagonist of um, Wraiths. And so I knew I had Malik. I was like, okay, what kind of world is he in? What is he surrounded by? How has he grown up? And as I started building the world around him, West African, like this sort of specifically the trans-Saharan trade route from like north to south, north to West Africa in the 11th to 12th century sort of became my grounding point because I thought it was such a fascinating time in like African history and very sort of Game of Thronesy with all the different empires and like ruling tribes and things happening. And I knew I kind of wanted to draw from that. And so I was like, okay, I have this world. I have sort of this section and this time period of Sahara Desert as my base. And then Malik, though, I, even though I started writing him, I'm like, I need a counterpoint here. Like, there's only so much he knows. I need something, another viewpoint that'll bring something that he himself alone cannot bring. And so that ended up being Karina. Cause I was like, well, what about the girl he's trying to kill? Like, what, what is she up to? How does she feel about this? And so her voice sort of became a counterpoint to his. And once I had those two, the ball just started rolling and rolling from there. So that was sort of the original spark of the idea. Uh, and so, yeah, when I actually wrote the book, I wasn't really writing for publication. I was more kind of like, can I write a book? Because at the time, I had never written a book ever. Like, people are all surprised to hear this, but Rates is my first ever book written, like, not just first published, like, in my life. Because before that, I'd had a couple short stories published in college, and I'd attempted to write a book, but I'd never got past the 25,000 mark. So I'd be like, oh, this is so boring. I hate this. And I'd give up. And so I was like, with rates, I was like, no, you know what? I'm going to finish this, like see it through, just prove to myself I can write a whole book and like not lose focus. So I did that. It took a year. And I remember saying, they're like, wow, I wrote a whole book. This is great. What do I do now? Um, and so at the time I was interning at Entangled Publishing and one of my bosses um, was Ashley Hearn. She still works with an editor um, to this day. She was like, oh, you have, a unfinished, you have a finished manuscript, but unagented? You should enter Pitch Wars. And for those who don't know, Pitch Wars is a mentorship program that pairs unagented writers with industry professionals, like sometimes authors, editors, um, other people who've worked in publishing, to polish their manuscripts and like revise them. And at the end, there's an agent showcase where the manuscripts are pitched to literary agents who can request to see more. And it's a very sort of prestigious sort of like um, program. Children But a Bone was a um, Pitch Wars book, The Kiss Potion, Hill and Hong. Like there are lots of books that have come out of it. So I was like, okay, let me do it. So I did some like edits on my own to get ready for Pitch Wars that year. So three months I rewrote the book again. And then I was chosen for my mentor, Laura Pohl, um, author of The Grimrose Girls. And she was like, I love this. I see such a spark here. I see what you're trying to do. I think you need to rewrite it again. And I was like, okay. So I rewrote the book again with her. Um, and then in the pit, so that took two months. And then during the Pitch War Showcase, um, my, I signed with my agent, Curisa Robinson of Folio Literary. And she was like, this is so great. I, I just love this. I see so much potential. Are you down for some more edits? And I was like, okay. So at this point, it's spring 2018. I do some edits with her again. Because um, the thing people don't tell you about publishing, like you're going to do so many edits in your life. Like you just, oof. So at this point, this is like draft four. And then we send draft four out and it ends up picked up by my editor, Kristen Renz at HarperCollins. She's like, this is so great. I love this. I have some ideas. I'm like, yeah, sure. So to shorten this timeline here, after it sold in um, April of 2013, no, oh my gosh. 
the book sold in April of 2018, not 2013. I was in high school. And <laughs> the book from then on, I still did six more rounds of edits. Not all of them were full rewrites, like four, but like still went through rounds, rounds of edits. And then the book came out 2020. So yeah, so that was about a um, four year timeline from like initial idea to publication. And across that time, I did 10 drafts. Wow. Not bad for the first book you've ever written to be published and a New York Times bestseller. A lot Thank of work, you. but well worth it. Thank you. In some ways, it's weird because like it's technically my first book because it was rewritten so many times. It feels like I got several more books in because like yeah. the original premise, they, like it was always Malik and Karina. It was always the same setting. I always knew they were trying to kill each other, but like the execution, the way we approached it, like the way I tackled it changed each time. Like all these subplots were being dropped, characters were being rewritten, rearranged. So like it feels like I got several books worth of learning done in this one book. Do you think the rewriting process helps the end product or do you, are you envious of people that can just get it down in a few drafts? I mean, it's both. Like I am, the book needs it. Like I'm very, very proud of what Rates has become. And through that rewriting, like I've not had to rewrite any other project as much because now I have a better eye. Like, oh, I tried this with Rates and it didn't work for X, Y, Z reasons. Let me not attempt this for this new book. But I also like, I know I have some other friends, like they can do it in one draft, they can do it in like two. And I'm just like, I am blown away. Like teach me your secrets. But on the flip side, I also know some writer friends, like their published draft is like draft 20. And I'm like, oh, I oof, I do not want to be 20 drafts in and still be like, what isn't working? So like, I used to kind of feel bad about like, why am I someone who needs to revise so much? But like, I just, at this point in my career, I've known so many different kinds of writers with different processes who all get to the, the end point, like a finished book that just realize you just got to do what works for you. Your writing has so many layers with the African folklore and the you know science fiction and the mental health aspects. Uh, is there a specific takeaway that you uh, wish readers would take from your novels? I think the biggest thing I want readers, especially marginalized and Black readers, to get from it is the idea that oftentimes the parts of yourself society wants you to hate are your, the strongest things about you. Because both Malik and Karina really sort of struggle with like Malik struggles very literally with mental, like with a serious anxiety disorder, but also their role in society. Like Malik comes from an um, ethnic minority within this world. He deals with oppression, he deals with imperialism. Karina is dealing with a lot of unresolved grief and trauma and dealing with a lot of internalized sexism because on the surface, it seems like this world is like a matriarchy and women have a lot of power, but then you start to slowly peel back and realize that's not actually that true. And these characters come into the story, they're, they're both very hurting in obvious and not obvious ways. And by the end of it, a lot of the things that were hurting them, they find ways to turn it into their strength. Um, and I really want a lot of readers to come out of it, sort of look at themselves and in what parts of my life and what parts of my identity have I felt distance from or have I felt have caused me the greatest pain? And then how then can I turn that into something about myself that's a strength? Yeah. And Rosie, you've touched on your writing process, parts of it, um, but we also know that you like to spend time wandering in the woods. And I, that just makes me wonder, um, does that help you clear your mind? I don't know if you you know believe in writer's block or not, uh, but do you get inspiration from things like that, from your, your long walks or any trips or anything like that? What other parts of your process need to take place? hundred percent. I like to tell, say like my best writing happens when I'm not writing because like things like the walks and the trips and just living life, um, people call it refilling the well. Like the idea that like 
you can turn on a faucet, but like eventually you're going to run out of water. And it doesn't matter how much you want to write. Like if there's nothing in there, like nothing's going to come out. And so for me, like just experiencing my life, getting new experience and knowing people, learning their stories is a part of refilling the well for me. And that's part of why writing the pandemic has been so difficult because I'm not like the trips are definitely fun and like the research trips and things don't get me wrong, but even just the everyday being around people and like experiencing life with them and just like knowing how they work was I don't think I realized how big that was on my process until that was taken away with the pandemic and so that's one thing I've definitely struggled with pandemic writing um learning to refill the well in other ways and like yeah I also like to like read I watch a lot of movies um I read a lot of comics and things so like that can help a lot but it's just there's no real substitute for the actual just experience of life for me Uh, what advice can you give for aspiring writers? I feel like my best piece of advice is treat your writing seriously before you feel like you're allowed to, in the sense that I I feel like so many people, they're always telling me, oh, I wish I could write, but I just, I don't have time or like, I just can't fit it in and all that. And like, I understand that. Look, I'm not saying there aren't like, people aren't busy. Like people, people are so busy. I know this, but at the same time, I definitely felt like whenever I would, back when I was in college, when I'd like take time to write, I'd feel embarrassed because like, oh, you're sitting here writing you could be like going out with your friends and doing this or like you could be doing that, right? And it's like, why am I doing this kind of like hobby thing when there's, I have nothing to show for it yet? And a lot of people feel like, oh, if I had a book deal, I'd make time to write. But it's, it's kind of the other way around because I always like to use the analogy, like if you want to like be in the Olympics, you have to be training at an Olympic level long before you make the team. Yeah. And so it's similar to that. Like I tell people, like, honestly, treat it like a sport in the sense that like when athletes like when it's time to practice, like that is a block of their time that's dedicated to just practice. And the same way my my like athlete friends, like if I'm like, hey, want to grab lunch? And they're like, oh, sorry, I have practice today. Like that's a time that's respected and that they give to their craft. You're allowed to treat writing the same way. Like um, when I started making headway with rates, I blocked out like an hour a week. I was like, this is my hour for writing. And like, I treated it like I had like a class or a meeting at that time that couldn't be rescheduled. So like, if someone would be like, oh, do you want to come hang? I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm busy though. Even though I knew I technically wasn't, but it was important to me to have that time. And so I say that to writers, like, treat it like a sport, treat it like a practice. Even if in that hour you hate everything you, you had get out, like, at least you've still done it. And like, that craft is going to keep building and building. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an hour. Like, you know, your schedule best, you know, where you can fill in time somewhere. So like, even if it's only 15 minutes or like 10 minutes, a, like a week, a day, I don't believe you have to write every day. I personally don't write every day, even though it's like my job at the moment. Like, but it's just about having that. It's about showing up and showing up regularly and you know what works regularly for you but giving yourself permission because people be like oh it's, you have so much time to write now that you have like your agent and your book deals and all that and I'm like oh no it's more the other way around like I have the agents and the book deals because I was taking my writing seriously before they showed up and so give yourself permission to do that too great advice great advice now in 2017 um, when you were a pitch wars mentee you returned the following year and you served as a mentor um, for that next class why is reaching back and helping others important to you it's so important because like like i mentioned in my earlier answer like when i finished my book i had no idea what to do with it because like i had studied um i was in the jimenez porter writing program 
at UMD. So like I had studied like writing as a craft, but I knew nothing about publishing as a business. And so like, it sounds so silly, but I didn't even know like how you, like that you had to query a literary agent. Like I did not know what that process was at the time. And so I'm so grateful to like my mentors and like the editors who took time and like worked with me, who helped me workshop my query and like answer my questions about how you actually get into this as a business to help me move forward. And I just, I, it's like people like to use the analogy, like you have to get your foot in the door, but like some people, like I was at the same, I didn't even know where the door was. Like people talk like, and so I think for me, the importance of giving back is like helping people, guiding them like, the industry is just so opaque and it's just so difficult to know where the ends are. And like, even if you know where the ends are, like what the faux pas are or like what the difference between like a cover letter and a query letter is. And so being able to give that knowledge, knowing it's not freely available, or even if it is, people might not know where to look for it and being able to give that back, especially to other marginalized authors, like it was given to me, it just feels like the right thing to do, like continue that cycle to make sure that like these opportunities are available for more people. Wonderful. Were there, were there any parts of the business once you learned that? Because there are a lot of people who are passionate about their crafts um, or just whatever their talents and skills are. But then when it kind of gets to a business level, um, sometimes, you know, encounter experiences that are not expected or like as positive. Were there any any aspects to the business that you didn't particularly enjoy? I think the one that would probably surprise me the most, because like in general, I've enjoyed everything because I've enjoyed learning about it. But the thing that surprised me that's been the most difficult is sort of how much the author has to like kind of, you have to reach a certain point where you have to just kind of let go and you have to start thinking, let's stop thinking of it creatively, start thinking like a project. So for me, that tends to happen after the book is accepted for print. Sorry, did I say project? Let me start over. It's when you have to stop thinking about it like uh your art and stop thinking about it as a product because usually that's once the book's accepted to print you've made all your editorial changes like it's going to go be printed and now it's like okay how do we position it how do we market what other titles do we compare it to which librarians do we send it to which booksellers which and it's all important things and there's a reason um, publishers have like publicity and sales and markets dedicated to this but it's so different from how I was used to thinking about my work that it definitely took me a while to be like, oh, how do I, like, at first you want to think about, like, your work unique and, like, what makes it different than other books? But now it's like, how do I think about how make, what makes it similar? What book, like, what kind of readers are going to be drawn to this? Like, start thinking of market sense. So that was something. And a lot a lot of authors were known for having gushy, gooey feelings and things. So thinking about, like, your work, like, oh, it's not, like, a product it's my baby but it's also a product yeah. so um, <laughs> getting to that point was definitely it was, it was a big that was a big learning curve for me thank you thank you for sharing that is it true that you like to create memes in your free time oh all the time yes oh i love a good meme i'm very active on twitter um and i just i think they're a lot of fun i <sighs> I just enjoy them. There's really not much deeper going on there. I just have a good time on that. And people be like, do your publishers know like you're out here posting all sorts of wild stuff? I'm like, do they know? They love it. They think it's great. So <laughs> what are some of your favorite memes? Oh gosh. Um, I think uh, um, one of my favorite ongoing meme going on right now is like people using different words and stuff, pandemic, like really you want to go out in a palm de replay? Like that's one of my favorite ones going on right now. Um general when there was that meme going around to like um that was like rest in peace Edgar Allan Poe you would have loved the Baltimore Ravens like stuff like that like 
thing to sing that people would have loved, which might be a little bit morbid, but I thought that was hilarious. That was a good one. Um, and then, I don't know if this counts as a meme, but I've just been thinking about it. Noodle the Pug. Is it Bones Day, No Bones Day? I just feel like No Bones, Bones Day, No Bones Day has been a great one that has been new to the scene, but that's just going very strong. I think he's getting a picture book, actually. So Noodle the Pug is another great... Uh, I'm going to say he counts as a meme because I enjoy him. So Nice, fun. And so what are you looking forward to, um, to doing this summer most? Just re- returning to doing? I'm hoping that, like... So I would like to be an optimist and a lot of projections for the pandemic are looking better in the summer and things tend to look a little bit better once it's warmer and people can spread out more. So I'm looking to hopefully do some safe traveling and like maybe do a few road trips with friends, maybe some cabin retreats and just sort of like get the like creative juices flowing. And also I'm really excited to prepare for my next full prose book release which is this fall which will be september 6th um so while blotting's guide to vampire hunting out with rick Ryden presents so i'm going to spend the summer sort of gearing up for that launch i was wondering if you can share with us a plot point or a part that you cut out of a your out of some of your writing that you you kind of still wonder oh there were so many so many at one point oh people are always surprised at one point so the book was originally not like written as like a fantasy romance because Malik and Karina both had different love interests in very early drafts of the novel. And it lasted like a couple out of the 10 drafts, I'd say it lasted at least four of them, like four to five, because I remember my age was reading. She's like, Rosie, are you sure like Malik and Karina like aren't the main romance? I'm like, nah, nah, they're not. I, if they were, I know, nah. And then, so we sell the book and then my editor, she's reading it. She's like, Rosie, are you sure Malik and Karina, like they, they both have their love scenes here with their characters. I'm like they're, they're cute scenes, but are you sure? Like, it's not, the, and I'm like, nah, 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 no, no. <laughs> I, I know I know what I'm doing. And I was reading over it, like maybe a couple of weeks after that. And I'm just like, oh my God, they're right. Oh my God, this is our, because <laughs> like, you know, you wow. have a problem. You know, like your romance is not working. If like if these characters have these official love interests, but they have more chemistry with each other than the love interests. And that's the thing like sometimes I know a lot of people fear like oh what if editors like they'll go in there and they'll ruin my vision or they'll change it but like that's not been my experience like a good editor sees your story and they'll be honest about like what the strongest part is and like what is resonating most and like she never made me change it she was never like make this a romance but she's like look this is what I'm seeing it's your book you can do what you want but these are my like reasons and like she's been the business in a while like all her reasons were solid and she was right so um that was a big one making it um taking out that love interest and making them the main romance at one point there was like a rebel subplot which because i think why always needs like i think it was just in my head from like things like hunger games and diversion all that like why always needs a rebel subplot and the book didn't need that i cut that and it was a lot less bloated for it which is wild because there's already so much going on um those are the two i think big big ones that didn't last from the early drafts and rosie so first i have to say i feel like we could talk to you um all day and certainly more uh but is there anything else any messages or or thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners honestly well just i want to give a big thank you to all the librarians at the howard county library system because like legit when i say i would not be here without y'all like that's not an and that is not an exaggeration. Like the library was one of my best friends growing up. And if that makes me sound like I was one of those weird kids who didn't talk to anyone, that's true. But also like just the space that you guys provide and like the services you do for the community are so, so vital. And so just thank you all so much. Thank you for bringing me back and like letting me be able to like sort of speak to the community for a little bit. 
Um, and then just to the readers out there, like we have an amazing library, like definitely take advantage of it. Cause like now that I've like lived out of Howard County for a little while and I've been to all sorts of libraries that were all really great in their own ways, but just really made me think like, bang, we really had something good going out in Howard County. So really just like take advantage of all the things you have to offer here. Cause not every other place has all these resources. Exactly. And Rosie, I certainly look forward to, and I think our readers will enjoy your future body of work, your current titles. Uh, you're an amazing author, but also example. So thank you so much for just sharing your, your background, your story, and some of the facets of you being an author with us today. Thank you. Definitely. And um, if readers are looking for um, the other things I have coming up, um, so I have just recently released Into the Heartlands, a Black Panther graphic novel, which features a young Shuri and T'Challa going on a quest to save Wakanda, because I'm a big comic fan, and this one's for slightly younger readers. And then I have a short story out with Star Wars and Stories of Jedi and Sith out on June 7th. Um, so that's a big Star Wars fan. And then, as I already mentioned, my middle grade debut will be out on September 6th. This one features Ghanaian vampire hunters trying to take over a middle school. So it is just, I have so many things coming out this year and I'm just very, very excited to share them with readers. That is fantastic. All the best to you. That's so much exciting content to look forward to for like everyone. Um, that is so exciting. Thank you. I'm not planning to sleep this year, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be, we'll be watching and reading so it's all worth your time, but we know you'll take good care of yourself. So please continue to contribute and do everything that you do um, to provide these amazing stories and tell stories and especially show West Africa in this light, which I don't think the first thing people think about is uh, fantasy and, you know, mythology and cool stories. So this is really amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing them. Thank you all for reading. Mm -hmm.